Hi, and welcome back to the Turning 30 podcast, a place where we talk about what it's really like to turn 30. For this week's episode, by popular demand, I have invited back onto the podcast Ellie Austin Williams to talk again and in more detail all about money and money expectations in our 30s. And this is a topic that I know is so relevant to so many of my listeners and my community and I know that especially in the past months even since Ellie and I recorded our first episode the topic of money and savings and the cost of living crisis has really been very prevalent so we decided that we wanted to re-record and continue the theme of having really open and vulnerable and honest conversations around a topic that is so often seen as taboo. Now, if you haven't already listened to the first episode that we did, we recorded it back in June 2022. So last year, you definitely, if this is a topic that you're interested in, should go back and have a listen to it, but it's not in order. So you don't have to listen to part one in order to enjoy this episode, which is part two. I really love this topic. And it's funny because when I originally arranged with Ellie to record last year, I was nervous because I really see something like money as an emotionally charged topic. And I've done a lot of work on my own money mindset and my own perceptions about money over the years, especially actually in the last year. And I've really, really seen the benefits of doing that work. So if you want to be supported and guided on your journey to change your money mindset and to really change your money habits and the way you feel about money, I invite you to check out my one-on-one turning 30 program. This is something that we can really dive into during the program. And one of the goals that many of my clients set is to really work on a negative money mindset in order to clear up the limiting beliefs they have around money and ultimately make more money and basically have be able to hold on to money in ways that they couldn't before. So I invite you to join me on a free consultation call for my one-on-one coaching. I currently have spots available for next month. So that will be in April. I'm recording this in February in 2023. So do check out if you're listening to this a little bit later, if spots are available, you'll be able to see that on my Instagram at turning30coach. And just before I reintroduce Ellie, I want to ask you to really promote my podcast. Up until now, I haven't received any sponsorship or partnerships for this podcast. So everything I put out here, all the interviews that I do, all the solo episodes, all of the content that I create for the podcast is really done to provide free value to my community. And I very rarely ask for things in exchange, but I really would love if you like the episodes for you to go onto whichever platform you're listening to. So I know majority of you are listening on Spotify. I know that from my podcast statistics dashboard. And All you have to do is click on the star next to where it says Turning 30 Podcast and rate the podcast, hopefully five stars if you're enjoying it. And the same goes if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, if you can just rate it as well. And if you are feeling generous with your time, I would love if you could leave me a review. And in addition to this, if you like any of the episodes and you find that they mean something to you, I always know that feeling of listening to a podcast episode and thinking of a specific friend who would benefit from listening to it or wanting all of my friends to listen to it. So I really appreciate you really helping me spread the Turning 30 mission and getting the podcast into as many listeners is as possible. 
So really appreciate that. And I'm hoping that this year the podcast is hovering right now around 80,000 downloads and I'm hoping to break the 100,000 download limit very soon and all of your help will really contribute to enabling me to do that. Okay, let me reintroduce Ellie. So Ellie set up This Girl Talks Money to talk about the money taboo and help women gain ownership of their finances. Alongside building her platform, Ellie has appeared as an expert panelist for many brands, including Glamour and Monzo, as well as providing insight and comment for Refinery29, Stylist, BBC News, and many more. She is also the co-host of the podcast Money Unfiltered, and I love that she calls herself your financial wing woman. Welcome, Ellie, to the podcast. Hi, Ellie, and welcome back to the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me back. I'm really excited to have you back. If for anyone listening, we recorded an episode. It was last year. I can't actually remember what month it was, but it was quite a few episodes ago. And we had an amazing conversation. Really recommend everyone to go and listen to part one. And we decided to jump back into part two and also to celebrate the fact that, Ellie, you've turned 30 since our last recording. I have yeah we spoke last at the start of last year and I turned 30 last June which was amazing um and yeah it's so funny isn't it that pressure we put on ourselves when it comes to turning 30 and actually once you turn 30 I've just had a great time um I feel so much relief I feel so much less pressure because I'm not putting it on myself to be like oh my gosh I'm nearly 30 I need to have all my shit together um now it's like okay cool I'm 30 yeah oh my god I love that wait before you turned 30 did you feel that pressure and how did it manifest in your life like what what happened when you felt the pressure yeah I really did and I was aware of it for a while I think it started in like the late 20s as it does generally and it was very much in my case a career work related Mm. pressure because thankfully for me um (laughs) I didn't have to deal with loads of pressures I was engaged I got married in when I was 29 so that was not something that I was stressed about even though I know myself I know that I was would have been thinking about that Mm -hmm. but for me work-wise I left my career as a lawyer when I was 25 and at that point I wasn't obviously thinking okay you know, what's my life going to look like down the line? I just thought, I can't do this, don't want to do this. Where am I going to go? And as I started to get close to 30, I was starting to have these really like negative thoughts about like, oh, well, if I'd stayed, this is where I'd be. If I'd stayed, I'd be earning X amount. And it was so bad. And I I mean, it's something I talked about in therapy because I was putting this pressure on myself to basically reach a point in a imaginary timeline that didn't exist because I I have no idea what would have happened if I'd stayed. I probably wouldn't have stayed. I probably would have just left a bit later. And actually, like I would have been very, very miserable, even if on paper it would have looked good in inverted commas. I just convinced myself in my head that there was this alternate life which I could have been living And mostly, again, from like a career progression, financial perspective, that everything would have been rosy. And I really had to work to kind of unpick that. 
Yeah. And I think I call it in coaching, in my specific coaching terms, the turning 30 manual. And I think that we all have it. And I think it's so funny, isn't it? Like if it's not about relationships, because we do, we happen to have be in a relationship at that point and I found, you know, the person, it's going to be about career. If somebody's got a really good career, then they're going to focus on relationships. Like there's always yeah. something, but the turning 30 manuals are these unrealistic or no, not saying unrealistic they're these socialized set of expectations that yeah. we subconsciously have internalized I think that we write these turning 30 manuals when we're probably like teenagers or maybe yeah. our really early 20s and we've decided that by 30 we're going to have the job x amount of money a savings account a house a partner kids you know all of these things and everyone's manuals do look different I think also culturally different it depends how you've been brought up and your community and and also personal desires but those those are the main ones and I think you're a really great example of that you had this really burdensome turning 30 manual for your career and I'm so happy that you did that work and you like you said you mentioned that it was something that you had to speak about in therapy and understood from that that just because you had that expectation and just because it wasn't there doesn't mean anything. Because I think it brings up feelings of failure. People who have these turning 30 manuals and then they literally 29, about to turn 30, and then they feel like they've done something wrong because yeah. it's not how they looked. And I'm sure that's what you went through. I went through it with every area of life. And my my 29th birthday was like all hell broke loose. Oh my God, don't have anything. I didn't have a relationship, didn't have money, I didn't have a career, didn't have a house. And yeah, I think it's just such a an amazing time. Obviously, I'm very biased saying this, but when you are 29 turning 30, it's the time to get clear and understand about these expectations and how they're not realistic and they're not fair. No, they're not at all. And I think, you know, what's what's funny is that I I was not in a great place, yeah, when I was like in my end of 20, well, end of 28, turning 29, like again in some parts of my life things were great but in the workspace it really I was struggling a bit to see my direction I my business started kind of by accident I didn't really have a plan and I was just struggling a little bit with it so I made a few decisions as well around work and decided that I was going to go and take a part-time job which was great it gave me a lot of I guess insights and ability to really reflect on what it was I wanted and then when that came to an end which was last summer as well just after I turned 30 I had a bit of a like oh my gosh what on earth is going to happen here like is this really awful but actually what it did is it had given me the space that I needed to at that point really get clear on what I wanted my business to look like and you know, this is not a guarantee to anybody um, or everyone that this is how it will be. But honestly, since I guess September, so just after turning 30, having had that break where I did some part-time work and didn't concentrate fully on the business, since I've been back in the business full-time, it has been a completely different game. Like it has been by far the most successful period in my business. It's been the most aligned that I felt with it. And, you know, obviously I'm not attributing that just to turning 30, but it really shows that things do and can get better. And that pressure that I was putting on myself was not getting me anywhere. In fact, I think it was actually doing the opposite. It was distracting me from what I could and wanted to do and needed to do to get the business into the shape I wanted it to be. Yeah, I love this story. I think it's such a good example of how 
the pressure that we put on ourselves can create the negative consequences and you have choice, you have autonomy over what direction to take because, yeah. you know, and I think it, it is to do with age and it's not nothing to do with age. And it's just that happened to be that you felt the pressure because it was coming up to your birthday and then you felt some relief. And also you just decided to take control. And I think that control looked like getting really clear on what you wanted. And I think it's a really good example of how operating under pressure, I always say this to my clients, it never ends well. You know, we make, no. we make not good decisions when we're in times of pressure and we can get stressed, but sometimes we need that, like almost the breakdowns. I always say that I always need to have a crisis before I get clarity. <laughs> it's like the storm before the calm. So yeah, it sounds like that's exactly what you had. And it sounds like it was actually productive that you went through the turning 30 mini mini manual crisis. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, I think the thing is that as I'm sure you've seen, like pretty much everyone does go through some sort of wobble at some point to often around 30, but like no one has it all sorted out. And I think that's the other thing that I've really realized because as well, I'm in a position where a lot of people, their first impression of me is what they see on the internet um, and the version of me that they put that they see there and a lot of people are like oh my gosh like you seem like you've got so much of your shit together like you know what you're doing and I'm like guys like this is not the case like no one does and also people come to me and I know this is something we'll talk about a bit more but a lot of people are starting to change direction in my life so a lot of my friends are changing jobs or changing careers Mm -hmm. leaving jobs um, and going in a completely different direction and a lot of people that I speak to in my community are in a similar situation and people kind of come to me and say like oh like you know you're doing so well how is it all going so well like how do I do this and I always say you know I made the decision I made the switch very early on at 25 and so I'm like I haven't been running my business for five years but I've been building towards where I am now for five years and actually I just got all of the like chaos in a way out of the way in my mm-hmm. late 20s it's not at all like suddenly everything has just come together yeah. um and I think so often people just think that you know what we see is a reflection of reality and it's not there's so much madness going on behind the scenes oh my god it's so not and I think you know this is about what we're talking about here is the comparison situations that we we enter into our 30s is that we have these false beliefs that everything that we see on social media or that everything we see on LinkedIn I think LinkedIn is a good example when it comes to careers because LinkedIn is like a hot what's the word like a hotbed for comparison when it comes to jobs and I think that we just presume that everyone has our has their shit together and that everyone has it sorted out and I get this a lot you know people obviously see my Instagram and they see me sharing all what I'm doing and everything and then they're like wow like your business and I'm like oh it's like chaos behind the scenes obviously you know I'm sure it's the same with you and we feel that you know I'm sure most days of the week I don't feel like I have my shit together and we just always presume that other people do but that's just our minds like our minds just want to believe that everyone else is doing really well and we're doing really badly So I love that point. I think it's really true. And anyone listening who, if you're turning 30 or you're feeling these pressures, and part of that is to look around and compare and say, oh, everyone else is doing so much better. I'm pretty sure that most people around you are also looking at you and thinking you're doing better than me. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, I find this so crazy because it's something, again, when I realized that, that actually a lot of the people around me and the people that know me the best as well, like, look at me and 
are jealous of things that I have, I've really started to be like, oh my gosh, like, because you always assume it's just you looking at other people being like, oh my gosh, I'm so jealous of them. But actually, when you start to realize that there are bits of your life that other people are jealous of as well, like, and equally, there are bits of their lives that you will always probably look at and be like, oh, well, I wish I did have like, you know, that holiday that you've got, or I wish I'd been bought that car or whatever it is. Um, No one's ever going to have it all. And it's that realization that we're all muddling along to some degree, like we're all working in this imperfect setup in this imperfect world. And we're all, you know, trying our best. It's, it's that realization, I guess, and acceptance of, of that state that really kind of, for me, at least helped me to accept where I am in my journey. Oh, that is just so spot on exactly what you just said of how to deal with these feelings of not being where you want to be at 30 and the comparison and the the jealousy triggers that can happen. I think this is a really nice segue into what I know we said we wanted to talk about is expectations of where you will financially be by the age of 30. So where you think that, you know, and whether it's how much money will be in the bank or your living situation or your career status, whether that's going to be, you know, the industry you're working in or the hierarchy, what's the word, the status of the uh, of yourself in work, uh, the seniority. What do you think most people struggle with when it comes to these expectations in their 30s? I think the fact that we as millennials often think we should have done everything by now. So we think we should own a house, but that we should, even if we don't own that house, be living on our own or have our own apartment that we can afford, that we should be earning a high amount of money whatever you define high to be and that we should probably have a partner that we're sharing our finances with and that we you know have got a fancy wedding that looks something like we've seen in vogue and that that's all been paid off um (laughs) oh and probably a few expensive holidays a year as well (laughs) yeah yeah and also for me, what's also coming up is the more materialistic things of like, probably by the time I'm 30, I'm going to have some like really nice jewelry or I'm going to have some like designer handbag. I mean, these are all things that I personally didn't like by the time I was 30, I realized it wasn't something I actually wanted. But I think when we were younger, we believe, I believe that financially speaking, I will be able to afford to quote unquote buy nice things. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so true. And I mean, even like, it's funny because now I'm thinking back about what I would have thought if you'd asked me when I was in my early 20s, what I would expect by 30s. Well, I thought that I would probably have a kid as well. And I'd be rolling around in a designer buggy, like pushing them around, like having a really nice time going to all of these really cute, like mum and baby clubs. Like what? <laughs> it's just it's just another world. But we do literally live in a different world now. And I think that is kind of the starting point is we don't live in the world that our parents lived in Mm -hmm. economically it is completely different it doesn't make it necessarily easier but it makes it understandable why we are not hitting those same milestones that we think we should have hit like financially the landscape does not look the same as it did 30 or 40 years ago your average person cannot do the same with their money that you could do then because things are much more expensive. Wages do not stretch as far. 
mm. as they used to. And so we're almost comparing ourselves to an impossible target, really, or a like we're trying to achieve something that is not achievable. I'm so happy that you're saying this because I'm even what's coming up for me when you're speaking is I quite often, for example, when it's in terms of becoming a mother, so speaking about that, you thought by 30, you would, you would have a kid, have kids. And I think quite often, like we can say, oh, well, it's a different generation now. That's the excuse that always says, okay, my mum had me when she was 21, but it's a different generation. So people are having babies later, but I often never, I never, sorry, use the explanation in my head or get to the point of acceptance that not only is it a different time in life but it's for different a different economy and I think that's really like important and and necessary to talk about what you said because we say for me I always use the excuse that things are just different now but no like things are factually statistically extremely different yeah we need to talk about it yeah and I think you know you have to look at this from like both perspectives because from one side it is a really positive thing that people are deciding because they want to focus on other things to have children later or that they don't want children or that it's just something that is not for them to think about until they're later in life Mm -hmm. I think the ability to have that choice and the fact that that's more acceptable now is a really positive thing but on the flip side there are a lot of people who would like to have children Mm -hmm. at a younger age who are deciding not to because they cannot afford it and I think that that group is often overlooked in the conversations because we're very focused on, you know, the positive side of the the ability to decide that you don't want to have them until later on. But there, there is a reality that there are a lot of people that would like to have children at some point in their late 20s or in their early 30s. And they can't or they, they feel they can't because of finances, because they are so stretched financially because of the cost of housing, the cost of childcare in the UK is wild. Like the impact of having time out of work in terms of maternity, all of those factors, people are just thinking, I cannot afford to do it. And that I think is really sad. Um, But it's also, I think, something that if we talk about more, I think maybe people will feel a little bit more compassion to themselves as well about those decisions or the state of you know the circumstances that they're in they they are not you know you're not deciding to delay some of these things purely because of your own reasons like there are external factors that are influencing these decisions and it's not all within your control like we can't magic up a better economic situation yeah wow yeah I think that this is really important and sometimes it's hard to know what we do want or what we are able to have. So it's like, I'm wondering if we were living in different economic times, people would probably come to different decisions and and make different life choices. And I think that you're right. And I hope anybody listening here who is in that situation that you would like to do something and you feel like you can't because of money, because of, you know, the what's going on in the world right now that you feel less alone and knowing just hearing you speaking about it saying like there is a group of people there are many many people who do want these things and can't and it's it's a hard place to be in and I guess we shouldn't try and fix it we should just say yeah how can we have compassion yeah exactly and I think you know I've seen it recently kind of going coming off the back of actually the Super Bowl and Rihanna 
and her performance and her saying that, you know, announcing that she's pregnant again. And a lot of discussion has come out of that because a lot of people on one hand were saying, oh my gosh, she is literally the proof that women can have it all. And then a lot of people equally are saying, well, like, A, do we really want it all? And also, like, is is she really the example? Because she is like a billionaire. Um, And if you've got endless resources financially, well, yes, you can get all the help you need to, inverted commas, have it all. And I think it's really about, you know, trying to unpack this. What is it that we are trying to achieve? What do we actually want? Because again, as well, this is a whole nother topic, but I think there's a lot of shame now attached to the idea of, almost wanting to just be a mother. It's funny because, again, I feel like we, and I'm a big advocate, like I love work, I want to work, I want to do it. But I think there's almost this feeling that, yeah, it's not enough to just say, I want to have children and stay at home and look after them. There's almost this, oh, like that's a bit old fashioned. And I think people, you know, should be able to admit to themselves and be confident in saying that's what I want as well. I don't, you don't have to do everything if you want to have a family. And if it makes sense for you as well, financially, for your family setup, you don't have to try and do it all. You don't have to put the pressure on yourself to work and to be a good parent and to have an Instagram account and to build a business in your spare time. I think we're kind of sometimes feeling like we all should be doing everything. Yeah, the pendulum has swung back in the other direction so much. It went for so long. We were focused on women being career, uh, being career women. That now, yeah, you're right. There's complete shame around, not complete shame, but that is society has judgments now about women who aren't trying to have it all. Yeah, sure. we know this. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's like just let women do what they want to do. I was just gonna say we can't do anything right. Like everything, it's like a like everything is like a lose lose. Like okay you shouldn't be you're going to be shamed for wanting to stay at home and be a mum because you should have a career but if you do have a career and you're really successful then you're not going to have enough time with your kids and then you're irresponsible and it's like you just can't why can't we just let women just be yeah it's crazy so when it comes back to expectations I know that we also talked about the living situation so something that I see a lot with my clients and I'm sure that you have lots of conversations about this as well is that when we turn 30 we have this expectation that we're either going to be on a way on the property ladder or already on it or we're going to be living alone renting alone and you know I have clients who still live with their parents or have decided to go from renting back to living with their parents because they want to save money for buying a house and they have so much shame around that and I think that they feel embarrassed and maybe also you know I have friends who are in their mid-30s and still have roommates you know they still live in, in shared apartments so Can you talk a little bit about the expectations about living situations at this age and how financially what's going on with the the economy is affecting that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is no secret about the fact that rent in particular has absolutely gone bonkers. It's gone off the charts, Um, not only in London, but across the UK in particular. What happened? I mean, long story short, a couple of different factors, but during the pandemic, a lot of people left London, moved out, rent prices dropped quite a lot. And then as we kind of probably could have predicted would happen, there was a point last year where people started to come back into the city, everything was starting to get more normal, employers started to say you need to come in a couple of days a week. Mm -hmm. And there was this convergence of people looking for property. But 
far more volume than there was previously because before there was like a steady turnover of people you know tenancies ending people moving it all kind of pushed into one point and also without being too boring a lot of the tax benefits of being a landlord have been taken away so if you are a kind of hobby landlord where you've got one or two properties which a lot of London accommodation in particular is where it's somebody that had a flat a, a 10 20 years ago they've kept it they've rented it out a lot of the financial benefits of that now have gone just because of government policy so it's not worth it so they've sold off a lot of those properties so there are less properties there is less stock and there are more people it's simple supply and demand and unfortunately what happens in that situation is obviously prices go up the lack of supply has not reduced the demand people want to live in popular areas People want to live close enough to social lives, to friends, to work. And in all honesty, I don't know how the balance will ever get back to where it was because we can't and we're not building property. People aren't becoming landlords in the same way now because it's not financially possible. It doesn't doesn't make sense for people financially. And I know a lot of people think, oh, well, that should be a good thing. But it's not a good thing when there's not enough properties still for people to live in because not everyone can afford to buy so a lack of supply of rental properties doesn't just solve the issue of there being more properties to buy because the properties that people were renting also are expensive so they're being bought by people with money they're not being bought by the people that were renting so I was going to ask so what's going to happen like what what does this mean for the future of the property landscape in the market in London I mean what it probably means is that rent will stay relatively high like I think it is stabilizing a little bit but people were getting good deals in the pandemic which will never come back um I don't think prices rental prices will ever be what they were pre-pandemic either you know I when I last rented in London I paid less than 900 pounds for a a room in for my half of a two-bedroom flat in zone two and in a big two-bedroom flat in a very good location like three minutes from the tube that's laughable now um wow. you can't you will never get that so I think there is there has been a shift I don't think things will get as cheap again but I also don't think people should just straight away assume that it's a good thing um that landlords are selling off their properties yeah. it's such a big topic and again I don't want to go too much into it but people need to be able to rent I think what people will have to think a little bit more about is where they want to live and where they are willing to live and whether they're a bit more flexible with that Mm. and ultimately that question about whether budget or location is the most important Mm. because if you're flexible on location you can be more flexible on budget you know there are still properties that are going to be under a grand that you can rent that are in nice areas but you might just have to travel a little bit more also this idea I think just to come back to your point about clients that are living with parents or that are feeling like, oh, I need to go home to save so I can I can buy. I wish people would listen to this and believe it, but I don't think they will anyway. But like, there is no rush to buy. We are obsessed in this country. And I do understand the obsession because renting is very insecure in the UK. It's not regulated enough, but there is an obsession with buying. And what actually people don't realise is that there are also a lot of downsides to buying and there are a lot of commitments that you have when you've bought. You know, you don't have flexibility. You don't have the freedom in terms of where you want to go. Yes, you're paying off a mortgage, but most people, when they're 
buying their first home are barely paying off the mortgage they're just paying interest to a bank um you know people are like oh well I don't want to pay my landlord's mortgage I'd rather pay like towards the ownership of my house in a lot of cases like for the first 10 years you're barely touching it you're literally paying interest um so it's not this magic pill to financial freedom you know the security and the ability to know that you can't just be kicked out that's a big thing yeah and I do you know I do fully agree and understand with that but I actually think that's more a problem with the rental sector than a reason to try and you know rush into buying especially if you're putting yourself under so much pressure and you're feeling like you know you're compromising everything else in your life to be able to reach that one goal I really wish and encourage people to just step back a bit and you know we were talking about this earlier but ask yourself like why am I so fixated on this goal and is it for the right reasons Mm, I I couldn't agree more and actually interestingly enough I'm not a homeowner you know I'm 35 I I think from a young age because I didn't have the knowledge of I didn't have a privilege that I knew I would be able to maybe get help getting a deposit from, from parents, which a lot of my friends back in, back in the UK did. It almost like it became an impossibility for me. And it was tough because I think that, like you said, we're fed this really strong belief in the UK that buying a property is the Holy grail of financial freedom. And it was difficult to have that dissonance of like, okay, I do know that I can't afford this in the next, 10 years probably and it does feel like I'm that means I'm never going to have financial security but at the same time I just I think I just kind of like swallowed that hard pill and then just was like you know what my life isn't going to look that differently if I don't have a property so it's funny to hear because you're what you're saying I wish other people knew like I'm I'm an example of like I live a really nice life I have built a great business I earn good money I don't have a property and I still get out of bed in the morning at the age of 35 and I'm absolutely fine. I'm fine. I'm surviving, you know? And I yeah. do think it's important to say it because I think that we put on this really invisible but really strong pressure from society to have to buy a property. And I don't think you do. Like, I really, I think, don't get me wrong, and it would look, um, I do have an aim at some point in my life to own property and I would like to do that. Probably it'll be in my 40s. But does that mean that there's something wrong with me? Probably people listening will say yes, because they'll be like, oh my God, Emma doesn't own a property, but my life is still great. And I'm just really happy that you said you wish people would just take a step back and see that owning a property isn't going to literally make you wake up every morning and be like, my life is good. No, no. And you know what? I think what's so funny there is like you, you said that people listening maybe think, I think if you ask people, people will never admit that they think that it's a, uh, an issue or that you know it's something that's wrong that you don't own a property but subconsciously I think a lot of people do it's this real like subconscious deep-rooted thing that a lot of us yeah probably have and yeah. it's something that I also am very open about talking about when it comes to like the the finances side of it is that um, I did a reel about this and people were like thank you for saying this I own a flat that I live in with my husband. The reason that we could buy the flat was because he has a very secure career, which is considered to be very reliable. If it was just me, no chance, absolutely no chance. We also had help with the deposit. Like I'm always very 
you know, quick to say that, you know, I did save my part of it, but we did, we did have help. And similarly, like there was all the, all the big things that we have done. And I say big in inverted commas again, but like financial milestones, Mm -hmm. getting married, being big one, we had help and people again are not very good at admitting that they've had help because there's this weird feeling around privilege that seems to exist and admitting financial privilege puts you in a bit of a vulnerable position I think sometimes because people don't like I guess people don't like the existence of it even though we know it exists I don't like really the existence of it even though I benefit from it exactly and I think it's like you don't like it if you have it and you don't like it if you don't if you don't have it and I think something actually I know I'm a huge fan of your your Instagram and all the content that you create and I think one of the, my favorite th- things that I've been seeing you put out is this really honest conversation that you're having in your community about privilege. And I, I think it was a while ago when you started, you, you did like a question box and then it was like posting and sharing people saying how much help they had with their deposits in the house. And yeah. I'm like, yes, let's talk about it. Because if we don't speak about it, then we just presume that every single person was somehow magically by the age of 30 or 33, 34, however old people are doing this, up until that age that they just they managed to save money while that person was so frugal in their salary that they put aside enough money and it's like some don't get me wrong some people who do have high earning jobs do manage to do it alone and and, and that's yeah. amazing or in a different situation because they're in a partnership or they they do the uh, the share I can't remember what it's called the when they share ownership and things like that but let's talk about the fact that you probably know statistics and maybe you can share but most people who are buying in London under the age of 30 have got some sort of help most yeah absolutely I mean so I the last time I saw a figure which is a couple of weeks ago um then and this is just a general UK figure but the value of the bank of mum and dad was around would put them at being about the 10th biggest lender in the UK so in the (laughs) in the context of banks like it's over a billion pounds basically a year, the value of money that is being lent from bank of mum and dad to kids um, mm-hmm. to be able to buy houses. And most of that is to be able to buy first time properties. I think I saw this the other day, but and to don't quote me on this because um, it's off the top of my head, but the average deposit in London now is over a hundred grand. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so even like you don't even need to yeah but I don't even need to explain the obvious there like people are not saving 100 grand by the age of 30 how much they're being paid really most of the time like yeah. you've got to be being paid a lot from age like 20 to be able to do that yeah and um, obviously you're gonna have your very few outliers like who have you know your KSIs um of the world who uh buy their 10 million pound mansion um but people are not doing this on their own um and there are a lot of, you know, there are starting to be more and more conversations about it. But one of the things that I really think will hopefully shift in terms of people feeling like they are not where they should be is more openness about this, about yeah. financial privilege. And it's really difficult. Like, I do really understand that it's difficult for everyone, because if you're somebody that doesn't benefit from it and you know you're not going to benefit from it, it doesn't make it easier in a way knowing that your friends have been gifted 30 grand or whatever but it does i hope 
make it more understandable why they are in the situation they're in. Like it doesn't necessarily take away the full emotional, I guess, impact of looking at that and being like, I wish I had that. Mm -hmm. But it makes it more understandable why you are not in that situation. And the fact that it's nothing that you have done or could do to put yourself in that situation. And word for word, what you just said is, is me. I'm a case study for it. Like, you know, a majority of my friends moved to London in their mid 20 early to mid 20s and bought property at that age because of gifts from parents. Most of them didn't hide it. Maybe they wouldn't walk around, you know, with it stamped on their forehead, but it was like a known thing between our friendship group that that's what had happened. And I was the person who didn't didn't have the benefit and didn't have that that um access to the to something like this. And it did still feel shit. It still felt uncomfortable or it still felt like, oh, that's a shame. I wish it was me. But I did feel that, okay, I felt I managed to arrive to neutrality and acceptance around it a lot quicker than if I would be looking around and I saw everyone do it and think that I needed to do it as well. And it's almost like stepping out of the rat race. Like I did step out of it and this is exactly, and I know we said we wanted to talk about this, like because the property prices are so high now, what is the effect of it on people our age like what are they doing in their careers and I definitely think for me that was the reason that at the age of 27 when I was a lawyer as well obviously we share we share our leaving law (laughs) paths um it was like I wasn't saving for a house so I was like you know what I'm just gonna leave and I'm just gonna do what I want yeah and I want to say this and maybe I'm um being a bit unfair to some of my audience my community but it gripes me sometimes when I hear people that are so attached to buying a house that they can't make any financial big decisions or other decisions that are based on finances because they have to be the slave to buying the property. And I'm always like, I don't know. I just think that you you can still have the aim of wanting to buy a property and not be a slave to the system. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And I mean, this is, we could talk about this for days, but there is a real, real trap um, that people get themselves into with property. And I'm seeing it already because a lot of people bought property when interest rates were low um, and really pushed themselves to the limit on what they borrowed to buy the house that they thought would make them happy. And two years later, their interest rate fixes are coming up for renewal. Interest rates are now significantly more expensive than they were two years ago. And people don't know how they're going to be able to afford it. And ultimately, that pressure of financial, I guess, yeah, being on the edge financially, however much you earn, if you've put yourself in the position, which often people buying houses do, where you are really like at your limit of what you can afford, is having that house really worth it? And I'm not sure that it is. I'm not sure there are many people that would say, it is. And I've had people in my DM saying, like, I actually really regret that we pushed ourselves to buy this big house and are now in a position where we can't really afford to do anything else. And I think trying to actually like reframe and like you said there, like detach and that neutrality, if you can do that, neutrality is a word I use a lot when I'm talking about money, because I actually think that's the aim for most people. I think it's not about this delighted, like over the moon relationship with money or feeling anxious and worried about money. It's about that neutrality where you just see it as what it is, which is this tool that you use to facilitate other things in your life. And if you can become neutral to some of those decisions or those feelings of those expenses that you think you should have, those symbols of status, wealth, privilege, if you can become more neutral, you can make decisions that are more in line with what you want to 
achieve and what you want your life to look like. And, you know, do you want your life to actually look like freedom and travel? Because if you're buying a house, you're compromising that. You're probably going to put yourself in a position where for a few years at least, like that freedom and travel and, you know, being able to spontaneously go and have a nice time with your friends, like that's going to be on the back burner. Yeah. And I don't think people talk about that. Yeah. And I think that's okay if you've sat with yourself and really consciously decided that that's what you want. But most people don't because they're too like involved in what they should do and not what they actually want to do. Exactly. It's that real piece about, and I know this is a lot of what you talk about, but it's getting clear on what it is that you actually want, not what you think you should do. Um, And I'm seeing it, you know, I'm seeing it more and more. And people are starting to think, actually, you know, we've had those two years of the pandemic where we couldn't really do anything. Everything was a bit shit and boring. And, you know, we couldn't really travel and explore. And I'm seeing people actually say, you know, I've had enough. I'm not going to carry on in the rat race and work towards that deposit to then buy the house. Like, I actually don't want that. I'm going to leave my corporate job and I'm going to go and travel for six months. And I've actually spoken to a few people recently and I like, this made me so happy, but who have made, um, they've taken voluntary redundancy. So loads of tech companies, especially have made a lot of people redundant. People I've spoken to are saying, okay, I'll take the voluntary redundancy, take the payout and going traveling for a few months. Like, my career will wait. I can pick it back up. But here's an opportunity that I didn't know was going to come. It's not, you know, per se, what people consider to be an opportunity being made redundant, but they're reframing that. They're seeing it as like, I'm being given some money here to leave a job that I like, but circumstances are what they are. I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to go and travel, have a good time. And then my career, I can pick up when I get back. And I think that's a great attitude to have. Couldn't agree more. And it's happened to quite a few of my clients this year where we started coaching together and they quite soon after got made really unexpectedly redundant because they work in tech or, you know, there's been so many uh, job cuts. And yeah, like I always use the term, like they've really made uh, lemonade from lemons, but take the benefits that you get, take the redundancy package or whatever it is you're being offered and go and A, go on a holiday, go and take the break, enjoy. You've been working really hard for however many years, go and enjoy this freedom. And B, go and figure out what you actually want to do now. doesn't mean they won't be employed again. They probably will come back, but a lot of them are using it as opportunities to become freelance or to set up their own side projects. And I have one amazing client who worked in tech and got made redundant coming up to a year ago and so out of the blue she'd start got a new job and it's one of those when you're the first in you're also the first out and she's earning more now than she could ever have imagined earning working completely flexibly for herself and she was like wow this has just been the best thing that could have happened to me she had to really work on those mindset the money mindset beliefs of having to have a stable job to prove yourself and you know there's lots of things around it that you have to work on but I just couldn't agree with you anymore I think that people in these positions just making the most of it is is really inspiring it's really expanding yeah it is and you know it's not always easy again I don't want to you know sugarcoat it that it it's not a shock to the system but I think it's that quote and I'm probably going to misquote it but like like rejection is a redirection um and you know I don't also want to say that redundancy is rejection because it's not a lot of the time it's literally nothing to do with you it's business needs to cut costs but thinking about those curveballs as redirection and opportunity 
is so powerful and like it gives it does give you a chance to say no I'm actually going to try something different yeah and also I think that it's just the fallacy of certainty that comes with employment that we all have been fed to believe that if you are employed your life is going to be secure and certain and all these things and the truth is is that whether we're employed or not like things aren't certain and how can you take that really scary concept fearful concept of uncertainty and actually use it to create the life that you want yeah could not agree more (laughs) yeah oh I feel like we could just carry on chatting for so long but we can't we have to finish is there anything (laughs) else that we've not talked about that we wanted to we wanted to say I don't think so I feel like we've done a good job of covering it all off um I mean, again, we we can definitely pick up on another episode at some point on yeah. any of the topics that people want us to to dive into. But um, yeah, it's been so good to to chat. Yeah, as always, I think this is the third time we've uh, collaborated, and I know there's going to be many more times. Um, you are such a source of knowledge when it comes to all things finances, and I know that my community would love to connect and know more about what you do. So, where can they find you? Absolutely. So on Instagram at this girl talks money and also on TikTok um, sporadically. Oh, um, I was going to say, what's this TikTok? What's happening? Yeah. I'm not there yet. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm I'm slowly kind of getting there with it. Um, but yeah, or just drop me um, a message. You can contact me on my website, which is just thisgirltalksmoney.com. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Ellie. And I'll see everyone on the podcast next week.